Under the Controlled Substances Act and Corollary State Law, the growth, trafficking, sale, possession, or consumption of psychedelics may be a felony punishable by imprisonment, fines, forfeiture of property, or some combination thereof. Psychedelical X is for general information only. Information provided on the show does not constitute legal advice, nor does your listening to the show create an attorney-client relationship with the host. Hello, I'm attorney Gary Smith, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Psychedelic Alex, The Law of Psychedelics, my ongoing exploration of the question of the law of psychedelics. Hey, Gary. <laughs> How you doing, John? <laughs> Surprise seeing you here. Fancy meeting you once again on Psychedelic Alex. Indeed, considering we've already been talking for five minutes and hadn't hit record yet. So that's our, that's our shameful admission to the audience today. Just uh, hogging all the good stuff for ourselves, apparently. Exactly, exactly. So, um, as always, I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and downloading on what's happening in Oregon, because you are my eyes on the ground. Which, if you think about that, if that were literally true, gross. Um, It'd be not a pleasant situation. No, no, there's not enough visine for that. For me or for you. <laughs> no, no, but mo mostly for you, because you would be the eyes in that situation. So in, in any event, uh, I know you're coming back today with news on the latest efforts to get some sort of a religious component baked into these regulations. And uh, apparently you've been banging into some obstacles in those efforts, and I'm eager for you to share with the audience everything that's been going on. So have I laid enough premise for you to start talking about it? Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I guess there's just so much to talk about. Um, since we last, I think our last interview we did, Gary was in, I want to say January, um, right before I presented to the licensing committee about the entheogenic practitioners framework for uh, measure 109 um, so I'll, I guess I'll just start by uh, kind of describing the framework and, and what it is and what it was intended to do and what it was intended not to do. Um, and then we can talk about just kind of the, the process. It's gone from, from there until uh, the board voted uh, on it uh, just two days ago on May 25th. Yeah. So the licensing subcommittee, uh, Mason Marks, uh, is the chair of or was the chair of that, uh, and in, he invited me to come present to um, their um, their committee about kind of how Measure 109 could be religiously sensitive and offer, you know, uh, religious freedoms in a way that, you know, respects kind of the, the federal history um, while also complying with the Measure 109 framework and the 109 system. So, um, I kind of sought stakeholder input and I drew on my um, experience both as a, a lawyer who has looked into issues under RIFRA and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, and as well as kind of other, uh, you know, federal religious freedom laws under the First Amendment, kind of the whole analysis there and what it means in Oregon's uh, context where uh, Oregon has made a decision at the Supreme Court of Oregon level uh, that would prohibit 
or allow the state to prosecute people who practice psychedelic religions. Um, so how does that intersect with Measure 109? Yeah, and I, and I was going to ask, um, why even have this as a topic for the, the, the rules making? And I'm supposing you just answered it. It's because Oregon's current laws don't provide really any religious protection in this context. So you're trying to basically get something into the program to create that, correct? That's exactly right. As you know, in order for you a, a psychedelic religion to be legal, it has to pass at least two different layers of protection. Um, you have to be legal at the federal level, and then you also have to be legal at the state level. And being legal at one level doesn't guarantee that you'd be legal at the other. Uh, so with if you're not legal under one, but you are on the other, uh, you can still be fully arrested, fully prosecuted, imprisoned uh, for your violation of the one that you're not legal under. Um, so, so within Oregon's context, you know, the federal RIFRA law, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, provides a clear pathway um, for a religious organization to 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 be legal uh, at, you know, according to federal law. Yeah. Um, but under Oregon state law, there's literally no way at all for a religion to do that with the limited exception of a peyote religion in the state of Oregon. Uh, you don't, as you know, uh, Oregon's one of the six states that allows uh, non, uh, people who don't have a native or tribal affiliation uh, to to participate in, you know, peyote religion uh, without it being prosecuted. Um, but so other than that limited exception, which is now kind of out of date with the current thinking about um, peyote protection, uh, you know, I think the general trend is moving in the direction of not uh, allowing, uh, you know, from 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 the movement side, uh, people who aren't native not taking peyote um, out of respect for uh, people who've a much longer uh, cultural, traditional relationship with peyote have, have been asking, uh, you know, non-natives to not take it. And I think... Yeah, yeah. Um, especially in California, uh, where they've had their, their revision laws being um, targeted specifically for that. Yeah. Yeah. That's been a huge deal in SB 519 is my understanding um, as well as even I think the Oakland decrim uh, measure. Yeah. Um, you and I have spoken on this before and uh, you know, the peyote church I represent, we have a very different take. We actually fully support home cultivation in order to help protect the species. Uh, we, we fear that um, by not doing that, the risk of this, plant disappearing in the wild is greater. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really complex conversation. I guess For there. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I, I think there's um, points to both sides, which is why it's such a thorny issue. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's, so there's that in Oregon, there's no legal way to be a psilocybin religion. There's no legal way to be an ayahuasca religion. Uh, there's no way to be any type of schedule one religion unless it's a peyote religion. And if you are doing that, even if you were to say, for instance, sue the federal government 
and secure the right to uh, practice that at the federal level, you're still illegal at the state level. Um, and so that is part of this conversation that has been, um, I guess, really confusing to people. And because it is this kind of technical legal area that implicates our federalist system, um, you know, this it doesn't make intuitive sense to a lot of people that you're legal federally, but you're still committing a crime under state law. Yeah, yeah. Although most people, <laughs> if they have a cannabis experience, should know that already. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, so it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Except it's the opposite where you're legal federally, but not at the state level. And yeah. usually the state is the one that enforces low level crime, uh, you know, crime uh, yeah. because federal government just doesn't have the time or bandwidth to, to mess with small things like that. So yeah. if you had your choice of being illegal under one, but legal under the other, you'd almost rather be legal under state, but not federal. Uh, yeah, I think. Well, the probability of you banging into the authorities of that jurisdiction are greater. I agree. Particularly yeah. if you're smaller or low level. But yeah, if you if you industrialize and get big, then yeah, the probability of the feds becoming involved exponentially increases. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's kind of the important legal framework that this whole thing exists under and why it's needed because in order for, you know, kind of community-based entheogenic practice or psychedelic, you know, practice to become uh, above ground and to be, you know, have the harm reduction uh, kind of benefits that come from access to law enforcement services or access to emergency medical services without needing to away between the criminal risk that you'll uh, expose yourself to by by going to a hospital if needed or something like that. There's just some really important intrinsic harm reduction uh, benefits that come from kind of above ground practice. And um, so there's already this underground that's kind of thriving. Uh, we don't know how big it is, but at least in the ayahuasca context, we know that in 2020, there were 966 ayahuasca seizures at uh, customs, uh, and that's believed to represent a really pretty small amount of the overall ayahuasca coming into the United States. Um, so, you know, there is this whole undercurrent that I don't think anybody really knows how big it is. But as I've been uh, doing this work and kind of becoming more public with it and creating more of a social narrative around it, uh, I've just been shocked time and again at just how widespread and enthusiastic the support has been uh, for a legal, you know, community use, religious use type of paradigm uh, for psychedelics. Um, and it's, you know, I just think this is like, we're tapping into something that's just bigger than uh, either the state of Oregon or even, even most of us advocates really, I think, fully appreciate how, how big of an issue this, this is. And, and will only get bigger over time. Oh, agreed. I, I absolutely think psychedelic religions are ascendant right now, and their numbers are going to increase. Like exponentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, even in Oregon, when we have this system where, you know, arguably, uh, and I don't think this is just a technical legal argument, if you're a psilocybin religion that's operating in Oregon, you are probably the only legal operator in the entire Measure 109 program, uh, which might have interesting implications for banking. Uh, it could definitely have really interesting implications for 280E. I mean, 
if RIFRA relaxes laws of general applicability when they burden religious activity, uh, 280E seems like a law of general applicability that's substantially burdening. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, well, you know, I'm, I'm really pleased you said that because I had been ruminating on this question and I don't know what the answer is. I just know that the question's out there. But are religious groups that engage in psychedelic or entheogenic practice even necessarily subject to 280E. I think there's a strong argument to say that they are not because it's yeah. not a, it's not a commercial enterprise for them. Yeah, whether they're trafficking in a schedule 1 or schedule 2 substance. Yeah. I mean, we've seen in Oregon at least the board of pharmacy declaring that they don't have the regulatory oversight ability or the regul- the authority to regulate a dime from the Santo Dime Church. Um, and so that would seem to, at least at a state level, provide kind of persuasive type of legal reasoning to um, that the IRS could, uh, you know, mirror in its own wrestling with the, the situation. And of course, I think that's an issue that will likely need to be litigated um, by. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And you're, you're talking years before a decision becomes final and binding. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, so, you know, that issue alone would be, you know, if it if it gets decided in the way that I think a plain reading of the statute would basically require, um, it would totally reshape the face of, of psilocybin services in Oregon. And I think a lot of people would be then using it as a more loophole type of thing than a, necessarily like a, I think it would create problems of who's who's really in this because it is religious and who's there to take advantage of a, of a tax loophole. Um, but of course, that's not a reason to suggest that there aren't serious operators and serious practitioners who would, um, you know, be, be doing that for the right reasons, but sure. uh, either way, it would just totally blow the door off of it from a, you know, a more trip city wellness kind of model into a more, you know, uh, that alone is going to be you know highly, uh, persuasive, I think, in, in just the, the market dynamics, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah, I would think also that if you've got participants who are, are there on premise of religious expression or religious practice, but as you describe in your example, perhaps really aren't, uh, you know, they still fit within the program as long as they're following the rules. The only thing they're really risking is the potential for a, a tax audit, and if they were claiming exemption when they shouldn't have, some pretty gnarly, gnarly fines and penalties that go along with that. So, you know, that's like the big part of their downside, right? Well, with, with, with it's interesting with this Tanzan v. Tanir uh, kind of line of reasoning that if, you know, if the IRS insists on collecting money from an theogenic church that should be exempt under a RIFRA kind of analysis, it almost, you almost wonder if that would create individual liability for, uh, you know, IRS officers who would. Hmm. Hmm. Intriguing. My gut says probably not. Well, it would depend on how the IRS was reacting towards you. For example, if the IRS took the position that they disagree with your assertions about religiosity, sincerity, etc., 
look, the IRS could exercise choice and uh, file a, a suit to get a court decision on whether that's a correct or incorrect assessment. I don't think the filing of the suit would itself be a RIFRA violation, though. So as long as the IRS didn't take some sort of affirmative negative action that turned out wrong before filing suit, I don't know if they're necessarily beholden. But I'd have to think on that. That's a, that's a new question for me, too. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone's really thought this through uh, much before. But if if you were to send a letter to the IRS and say, look, we're a bona fide religious organization for RIFRA purposes, uh, you know, and probably offer some reasoning and some evidence to that effect and say, we're not going to follow this because we don't believe that 280E applies to us. And so then they elect to not abide by it, uh, you know, and then if the IRS takes an enforcement action, uh, I think at that point, if if a federal court ultimately agrees with the uh, religious organization that that they were properly religious and that 280E is a substantial burden to its practice, it's not the least restrictive means of doing whatever it might pretend to have some kind of compelling interest in and giving a ridiculous tax regime to, uh, yeah. then then, you know, I think that would be, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of an interesting analysis that we'll, I, I'm sure we'll see play out in Oregon in the not too distant future. Uh, oh, for, for sure. And I, I could tell you this much, it would come with my stock advice to all my clients, which is, we don't know, and you don't want to be the test case. So, <laughs> Unless you're filing it as a declaratory judgment action. Mm. Oh, you liked my idea, did you? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. We're, I'm, I, I'm actually in, in conversation with some folks about uh, pursuing something like that. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, I, it's as much as I can say on the topic, but um, I have been sharing that theory around and it's starting to get some attention. So, well, Great minds think alike, don't they? Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right, so you've been you've been banging into frustration though with with trying to get some religious uh, acknowledgement into the program. So, uh, what what's happened? You mentioned that there was a vote a couple of days ago. It was shot down, though, wasn't it? Yeah. So there was. I mean, we've since early February when the conversation really began uh, at the board and at subcommittees about you know, religious use or spiritual and theogenic type of use modalities and community use, we've received uh, recommendations by two different subcommittees, uh, both the licensing uh, by a vote of four to one uh, voted to adopt the proposal, Uh, the equity subcommittee by a vote of 11 to zero uh, voted to support it. Um, And that was basically as much time as we got before the subcommittees kind of went into dormancy um, to give time to resolve the rest of the things because we are running out of time in Oregon. We now have exactly three hours of full board time left before the board's done with its recommendations. Um, so we basically ran out of time after just two. I mean, we would have continued to run it through and get critical feedback and try to, you know, improve and, and you know, do this in good faith to really make sure that what we're putting forth is a you know, incorporates all of the, the considerations that are necessary to make sure it's safe and, and well done and all that. And I mean, we attempted to do that, but, you know, in order to make sure that we're uh, putting forth something that helps people and does it in a, in a good and safe way, you know, we, we, we have sought 
wide feedback from a huge uh, number of stakeholders. And the, the one uh, stakeholder who has not really uh, opined or you know, offered um, meaningful dialogue around these issues has been the state of Oregon. Um, and they've uh, essentially uh, declined um, to meaningfully engage uh, in conversation around uh, the framework uh, instead, just, uh, you know, kind of deferring uh, to the board vote that's coming up. So um, that's been, it's been really frustrating for all of us advocates who have put just lots and lots of time and effort and, you know, heart and soul just poured into this work to try to Fr- make one of mine's program. Frustrating though, but not surprising, I bet. Well, call me an optimist, but I, <laughs> you know, this is Oregon, Oregon's a state that tries to get things done the right way and tries to be inclusive. And uh, the Oregon Health Authority specifically has these really, you know, sweeping, strong statements about health equity and community-based health uh, access models and and these kinds of things. And so uh, you would think that given the culture that OHA has been uh, creating across its whole uh, program, across the whole agency, uh, that this little psychedelic subset of that would still kind of uh, adopt some of the culture and the and the ethos uh, that OHA has been doing a really good job of uh, creating. Um, but it just seems to be uh, there seems to be a disconnect between the rest of their uh, really great programs of you know access and, and community health models, uh, but except for when it comes to psilocybin. <laughs> but um, so so the short of it is, uh, I reached out to DOJ lawyers uh, trying to connect with them about the framework. Um, one of the central considerations of the framework from its inception was we want this thing to be constitutionally compliant. uh, And, you know, that's one of the important goals is that this has to be a workable uh, thing, whatever it looks like. And if that means it's different than what we start, the key to this is that it creates uh, access, it creates affordability, it it creates flexibility to communities who work with psilocybin in sincere and, and good ways. Uh, that you do it safely. Um, if you're a community that's working with it safely and you you can demonstrate that you can work with it safely, um, you know, like the question is how much oversight like do you need? And so essentially the proposal would in this community use framework, the, the, the best way I've kind of arrived at describing it is if a, the risk profile is of a particular community, let's say if everyone in this community is highly experienced, uh, they've been working together for years, they all know each other very, very well. And let's say they take low doses of uh, psilocybin uh, at, at, in their ceremony or whatever, um, you know, how much safety protocol, how much safeguards do you need for if, you're, if your risk profile is here, but you have inflexible rules that require this amount of safety, uh, you know, regulation, uh, you're, you're this the gap between here and what's what's needed and what's required uh, prices people out and it yeah. keeps people out of the entire program. So the idea is that they should be kind of as close together as possible with with the acknowledgement that if it has to err, it should err probably a little bit on the side of safety, but not like not by that high of a degree. 
Yeah, um, I tell you, if, if you can, can you cite some examples from the, this proposed protocol that can help folks at home understand like what you were trying to achieve? Yeah, so one of the biggest pieces of this has to do with uh, products. Um, so in the unregulated market, that is the only market that we have right now uh, for, for psilocybin containing mushrooms, question is how much harm comes in the unregulated market on account of products either not being tested or not being tested very often. Um, and I'll just defer to you, Gary, have, what stories have you heard about uh, people being harmed by untested or less tested products? Of any kind <laughs> or specifically um, um, psilocybin mushrooms? Let's let's say psilocybin mushrooms specifically. Okay, I, the honest answer is I don't hear about that ever because there's no illicit mushroom nothing in the country. So that kind of specific information never crosses my desk. Uh, it what just is, it isn't data that comes to me. And of the harms that you've heard that have happened uh, from illicit mushroom consumption or mm. purchase or what have you, sure. Uh, what in that context? How much? How many of those harms? that you've heard about could have been avoided or would have been avoided had the product been tested? Uh, literally zero, literally zero. The, the uh, illicit market psilocybin mushroom stories of, of air quote here harm uh, that I have ever heard are the, the stories that you see in the news, like, you know, once every year where some reporter gets a bug up their butt and decides that, Oh, this, this crime that took place. Oh, they found a mushroom at the scene. Oh, it must be a mushroom-related crime. Um, meanwhile, the story doesn't even mention if the mushroom was consumed or part of the event. It just happened to be there. That's the typical news story you see. Uh, the other stories I've seen were like from years ago uh, before Amsterdam had prohibited mushrooms but still left all of the uh, subterranean iterations in the form of truffles perfectly okay. Which, by the way, folks, same damn psilocybin. In fact, even same species of fungus in most instances. Um, and even then, what happened in, in Amsterdam, the, the story was some, some tourists came over and, and indulged, indulged and had some previous issues and uh, harmed themselves. But you know, there was never a causal link drawn between the harm and the mushroom. But everybody overreacted, and, and that was the end of the mushroom days in Amsterdam. Uh, and even today, people say it was an overreaction. Well, and even with that particular uh, instance, as I understand it, and I, it's been a long time since I've kind of heard the details of, of what happened, and, I, and I, it was a serious uh, harm that occurred. Didn't a young person die, I think? Mm, yeah, I think so. I think so. But yeah. but not as a result of the mushroom is the point. Uh, so more more on this concept of, you know, testing and, and harm reduction. Other things that I have experienced involving testing and harm. Uh, in the cannabis industry, we have, well, heck, just this past year here in Arizona. Uh, it took us over a decade to get testing passed. And so we finally have it after a decade. Uh, the previous 10 years, nobody cared. <laughs> so what's that tell you? But even, even since then, we have had a few instances of product recalls. We had just last year uh, some products, I think, test positive for salmonella, and they pulled them off the shelves. And I don't recall hearing anybody reporting 
having encountered one of those products and actually suffering an illness from it. Now, contrast that with Chipotle, where you can go get a lovely bean bowl, and they've had numerous problems with E. coli from their lettuce uh, and salmonella, I think, also over the years. So, you know, this happens anywhere, anytime. Safety is never a bad thing. Testing is never a bad thing. But do we obsess on it? Not really. But if it's exclusionary impact is out of proportion to its safety benefit, then it, it doesn't serve positive purposes overall. Yeah. Oh, mm. a- a- absolutely. Look, you could take any consumer product and mandate a test. Uh, look, uh, you want to have a radiation test for your car? Get your car tested for radiation. Is it going to do anything for you? Not really, other than give you a big fat invoice. So, yeah, I, I agree with you that adding layers of extra uh, regulatory ick that just adds expense and not actual benefit needs to be measured and weighed. I agree. And with the Amsterdam incident you mentioned, and the story that's fresh on my mind, there was a person who recently passed away in Washington. Um, I believe it was their first time ever taking psilocybin. And they took, I think, around three and a half grams and went hiking. And I think the person like, fell into a uh, river and drowned. And, and what um, would testing have done pre- to prevent that? I mean, testing wouldn't have done anything. Measure 109 would have prevented that completely because there would have been somebody on hand that would have said, first off, three and a half grams. Well, they wouldn't have been wandering alone by a river. So they would have avoided all of that. Same thing with the Amsterdam harms that occurred within the 109 framework. All those harms would have been gone, even with no testing. I mean, like, or, or less testing. So so couple that, like a friend of mine just recently told me the story that they went to a psychedelic investors conference and somebody on the stage said that a single capsule of psilocybin in Oregon is going to cost $750, like $750 for this highly regulated. And granted, that could have been partly inflated to try to get people mm-hmm. to want to go invest in that company that's going to be selling these gold pills, you know. Um, I'd love to know what the math was behind that figure. Like, for example, were they also including the administrative cost of the program? Not not necessarily the consumer uh, retail price, but just like the literal cost. You could make an argument that a single capsule would cost that if you amortized both sides. Sure. But were they saying that in reference to the literal retail price to the end user? Yeah. Wow. 750 mm-hmm. bucks. That seemed really high to me. And, you know, I wasn't there, so I don't know, you know. I'd uh, love to see their math on that. Uh, they presumably worked up a spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah. You you assume that somebody at that level wouldn't just be making numbers up out of nowhere. Um, but, yeah. Uh, so that's that's the fear. And particularly in the early days of this program where we likely will have a, a t- testing bottleneck where people can't get their products tested uh, because there's more growers and there are testing laboratories. And that's a very real problem. We have that here in Arizona with our cannabis program. They, Mm. they switched on testing, but the labs weren't standing up yet. And the volume was way beyond their capacity. Still, still to this day, a problem still to this day, a problem. So one of the aspects of this framework would try to create, you know, I initially used this term homegrown and now it's come back, you know, to bite me with a vengeance. Uh, I didn't ever mean actually like grown at a person's home. I meant like 
grown at the service center, meaning like, you know, yeah. like farm to table kind of sure. less commercialized, not unregulated, less regulated, where the testing rules can be a little bit relaxed to, you know, allow kind of a direct on-site straight, you know, from the service center to the consumer without having to go through all of this chain of commercial you know, uh, transaction, uh, that would result in a $750 capsule, uh, you know, and by doing that, we empower communities to provide uh, sacrament or, or, or mushroom to people who, who need it and uh, empower them to do it with flexibility at the cost level without, you know, and so the trade-off there by relaxed testing rules for a, an onsite, you know, grown, at a service center that's co-licensed as a manufacturer, um, you know, if they have both licenses, they could grow there, give it straight to their client, not have it be shipped off to a lab and then come back and wait all this time and sit there and age while you're waiting on the testing, your place in the queue to get through it and pay all this money, you know, and that's the way the general testing rules are drafted in Oregon. Every time within a 24 hour period, you harvest any mushroom, you have to test whatever you harvest in that 24 hour period. So that literally means, you know, you, that it, it makes it really uh, impractical, if not impossible for communities to have these kind of farm to table kind of organic type grows that, yeah. you know, instead of this regular, you know, highly commercialized uh, chain. So the cost benefits versus the safety benefits uh, really balance uh, allowing communities uh, some flexibility to, to, you know, produce their own mushroom to, to help people when you're dealing with like a nonprofit community-based organization, that's going to, you know, be tied in enough with the, the product to know that to, to actually know what they're giving people. So it's not just like, you're growing mushrooms that are of an unknown quantity, you know, like a community that works with mushrooms is going to know how strong, you know, in a, in a general sense, maybe not the exact milligram level of psilocybin, but in the unregulated market, nobody really operates with exactitude. You know, they, there is some imprecision and we work usually in terms of grams. Yeah. Yeah. You know, unpack just this one little thing we're talking about. Oh my God. If you really want to unpack this, it is so freaking complex. So, yeah, you're right. Like, the, the, if you were to opt for a a on premise cultivation, harvest, and administration all in one place, you have a lot of choice just on on the cultivation portion of it. What substrate are you using? When do you harvest? Are you giving the end user a fresh mushroom or a dried mushroom? These are all important factors that go right into it. So, yeah, like imagine if you wanted to have customer come, you literally harvest the mushroom while they're there and let them consume it. If you have to stop in the middle of that and test, forget it. Game over. You can't do it. Can't can't do it. So it's going to prevent fresh, really, almost altogether. Uh, and then, you know, fine. If you're not going to have fresh, then you're going to have to be doing batch harvesting and mushrooms don't pop out all at once and you harvest them all at once like a cannabis plant or another food crop. Uh, You know, you've got this lumpy mass of whatever substrate you're growing in, assuming you're using a substrate. And uh, 
they, they fruit when they fruit, you know, and it can take place over multiple days or weeks. And are you coming back and testing every single time, even if it's coming from the same fungal mass? Under the, under the now final testing rules that we have that will generally apply to the program uh, and will apply to everyone unless OHA takes some action to, to carve out like a special community use uh, system, uh, every time within a 24-hour period you harvest mushrooms, you have to go get them uh, tested. Uh, that, that harvest batch is the, is the term that the regs use, but it basically destroys an ability to have small scale grows because even within uh, with whatever time frame you're looking at, you know, if, if testing is going to be relatively expensive and that cost is going to be defrayed across the entire harvest batch. Uh, uh, let me just pause you. Testing is going to be expensive. Not, not if it's going to be expensive. Have you priced the equipment for a lab? Um, I million bucks I, to open your doors if you're lucky. Million, how much? Million dollars. Million dollars. Mm-hmm. If you want to open a proper lab, yeah. And because there's going to be so few of them, uh, they're going to want to get you know return on investment, especially mm-hmm. in the early days of the program when they're in high demand. Oh God, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. if you're if you're lucky, you might be able to pour boy it for a half million for a lab. But when when you you know you, you get all of the the gas spectrometry equipment and and the different uh, I don't even know what they call them but yeah it's just it's really expensive high tech gee whiz gizmo stuff it's not just you know cheapy Home Depot or or Target <laughs> testing gear it's really really refined really gear yeah yeah so that's kind of I mean just one uh, you know microcosm of the proposal yeah. is at the testing issue and then so like we see in Washington. Uh, Washington, I believe, was the first state to enact, uh, you know, cannabis, uh, you know, adult use cannabis uh, system. And they kind of em- embraced a similar kind of really overly conservative logic that was if we allow people to have homegrown cannabis uh, in Washington, then it won't pass. So they didn't pass it. And they've never gone in and allowed a homegrown uh, cannabis system in Washington. So today, the only way that you can legally uh, under state law, consume cannabis is if you go to a dispensary and buy it. Mm. If you grow, if you're a medical patient and you grow a couple of plants in your backyard uh, because you're too poor, like if your pain needs or whatever they are, are so high that you can't, you know, afford to buy it all from a dispensary and you want to just try to like save costs and grow it uh, your own, you'll go to prison as a, as a drug manufacturer mm-hmm. in the state of Washington and, you know, now that dispensaries are making lots of money, they have a special financial interest in keeping it that way. Oh, 100%. Uh, yeah, <laughs> 100%. And so there's no reason why Oregon needs to really, like, inflate the safety concerns about, you know, less tested products uh, in order to, to create a system that's going to require, uh, you know, ex- exchange of a lot of money in order to, to, take, to take psilocybin, uh, you yeah. know. I'll give you a real life example from, from uh, right here in Arizona. Um, depending on the strain, of course, and also depending on the dispensary you're at, but uh, on average, uh, an eighth of a quality strain at a dispensary here is selling for about $50. I have home grow rights here in Arizona, so I home grow. For that same $50, I can produce at home almost a half a pound. Mm. An eighth in a dispensary, a half a pound at home. It's not even a contest. 
So, yeah, the economics are tremendously different. Tremendously different. So the proposal would say that for nonprofits who who, who work with psilocybin, uh, they ought to be able to have these grows on site that allow an affordable, you know, it's not even that they're not tested. So to be very specific under the proposed rules for whole mushrooms, not including extracts, there's basically five testing types, which include speciation, potency, heavy metals, uh, pesticides, and contaminants. Okay. And of those five, three of them already are um, only upon written request by OHA. So with the other two, which are species and uh, potency, uh, species is required only once every calendar year and potency is required every batch. So with the, the framework, we would basically put all five into the same category of only upon OHA request. So OHA can still request testing if it has any desire to do so uh, for these kind of communities that would operate like that, you know, with these privileges. Uh, but they, but the default assumption would be, you know, that there, that there's, that it really doesn't serve a, a strong state interest and it doesn't serve any strong safety goals. So by creating a flex, and some communities will want to potency test and, and that sort of thing. Um, and, and that's perfectly fine, you know, but if, for a lot of communities, if the difference is between being able to have a $750 capsule that they uh, sell versus, you know, mushrooms that they could sell presumably for, you know, $5 or less for a dose, it's just like the, the, the imbalance there, uh, you know, assuming that those projections are rooted in something close to reality, you know, at $750 capsule, um, you know, some, yeah, like you're saying, five, $50 for a half a pound of cannabis Somebody told me recently that they can grow a whole pound of psilocybin mushrooms uh, for $5 once the, the grow is set up and, and operational, like the, the material costs are yeah. very low. Oh, yeah. You and I have spoken about this before. I, I home grow gourmet mushrooms. Like I grow lion's mane and oyster mushrooms. It's ridiculously cheap. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I say this only semi-facetiously, but I mean, like psilocybin mushrooms literally grow in shit. That's not how I would personally choose to grow them if I grew them, but that's where they're found. They literally grow in shit. So it's as cheap as cheap gets. So yeah, the production side is not expensive at all. It's all the extra things you've got to do. You know, it's, it's having the insurance, having the testing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's where the expense comes from. And a lot of communities really enjoy uh, the kind of relationship of being able to cultivate a plant or a living thing and then harvest it. And there's something that is just kind of has a wholesome, you know, like, like a vegetable garden. It's some, it's more people find it preferable to go harvest a carrot out of their garden than to go to the store and buy a carrot, you Guil know, and guilty as charged. I, it's funny you say carrot. I just emptied out my carrot box last week, <laughs> made, made room for the summer crop. The, uh, the fall crop is all now in my fridge. Nice. By the way, can recommend Parisian ball carrots. They're uh, they grow at about the size of a golf ball, sweet as could be. Hmm. Nice. Well, next time I'm in Arizona, you'll have to uh... treat you to a Parisian ball carrot. Yes, <laughs> I have planted more. They're growing now. Yeah. So that's kind of like the, the microcosm of testing. Uh, it's it's an important issue, and the state can make a whole lot of difference with you know basically no articulable safety concern about 
you know, a less tested product. I mean, it's, it's not sure when the, when the board voted against the proposal uh, to strike it down, uh, I don't, you know, really recall a single safety concern that was actually raised uh, in the whole meeting. Like nobody said that this is dangerous that I, that I, you know, that wasn't, I mean, if somebody mentioned a, a, pass, a comment in passing about a safety concern arising under the framework, that certainly wasn't the tenor of the conversation. That's not, that didn't appear to be dispositive to anybody's uh, decision-making. It just seemed to be uh, largely um, frustration. Like it was procedural in nature. It was, um, people were saying that, you know, yeah, how, you know, how could we, we haven't had time with this. What's the process? You know, this is outside of the process we usually gone through to make recommendations. And it's like, you know, and so they tried to attack it on procedural grounds and they tried to attack it on legal grounds. Um, <laughs> so they were, so they were avoiding engaging is what it sounds like. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and particularly not, not where, surprising, not surprising. Yeah. Disappointing, I mean, but not surprising. With the language that's been coming from the state about, you know, wanting to partner and wanting to be collaborative and to receive stakeholder input and listen to partners and this sort of thing, uh, you know, we've just not had any meaningful dialogue with the state uh, so far really about about this uh, in the slightest. The, the only dialogue uh, we've had is basically this DOJ memo that they published uh, Wednesday uh, as kind of a pretext for denying uh, the the framework. So it's, um, you know, the framework was specifically designed to be constitutionally compliant and to provide affordable community access. Um, it was written into the proposal that we uh, want to not favor uh, religions over non-religions. Uh, in the in the framework, I had uh, attempted to to draw that line by saying not just religious, but pretty much any type of spiritually oriented community uh, who works with psilocybin in a spiritual kind of way uh, should be able to avail themselves of these privileges. Um, and that's come under scrutiny in this DOJ memo. So in order to make it more, um, you know, less questionable uh, under that type of um you know, establishment clause type of scrutiny, um, you know, I had actually sent out in advance of this uh, meeting a, uh, a revised framework that would uh, basically frame the issue in terms of community use uh, with several options that the board could have wrestled with, with how to kind of narrowly carve out, uh, you know, any, any concern around preferencing religion. Um, and basically I got no response uh, from from virtually any board member about that. I reached out individually to all of them, and um, and, and and very few responded. And um, you know, it just seems like I mean, it's a volunteer board; they're all busy, you know. Uh, and and I can understand that maybe that you know it wasn't a really long time in advance, so you know. But it just seemed like uh, like the board didn't make hardly any effort at a good good faith uh, examination of these issues to figure out how they can create a program that doesn't exclude, you know, the 520,000 Oregonians who live in poverty. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so the, the board votes against this religious framework, but that doesn't necessarily mean religious groups won't be able to participate in the program, right? It just means that they'll have to 
comply with all the strictures and dictates. And if that means that they're priced out of it, oh, well, that means that means they're priced out of it. Is that basically where things stand now? Well, I don't think uh, we've given up this yet. Um, So the board recommendations are just recommendations. And the fact that they really didn't wrestle with the issues at all, like at all, like there was no substantive discussion about the framework. They just wrote it off without even talking about it. And I think it was, you even had the board of the, the chairperson of the board say, I'm going to recommend that we do this. My official recommendation to the rest of the board members and not even letting people think through the issues themselves. I mean, it was just so heavy handed and it was almost as though it, it really felt scripted uh, from the beginning, uh, you know, and coupled with the timing of the release of this DOJ memo and coupled with the OHA refusing to meet with uh, not only the Entheogenic Practitioners Council of Oregon, but also the Psychedelic Bar Association's Religious Use Committee. Uh, They, both organizations were told by the state, uh, no, we won't meet with you before this vote. We just need to let the process run. So for them to kind of orchestrate all of these like ways to try to avoid a serious conversation about it just seems to have- Let the process run but without meeting. That sounds like euphemism for let the clock run out. Am I wrong? <laughs> it, it just seemed like they're trying to avoid having to look bad by uh, refusing to create an equitable program, I think is really what it amounts to. Mm. Um, and I was very uh, slow in getting to this point where I've now come to believe that the the advisory board uh, and the advisory board process is not uh, being run uh, with an open mind towards, you know, this is the first type time in human history to my knowledge that anyone's ever tried to come up with a regulated adult use psychedelic services program. (laughs) So you'd think that there would just be a certain kind of humility uh, to, to not knowing what this looks like. And the fact that there's just an unopenness to basically community input on, on how this can be done safely and affordably uh, is to, is to commit a serious injustice. Yeah. I wonder if it's just blanket disagreement, just, people just not agreeing with this, or it could be fear of the unknown. Uh, I suppose it could also be laziness because this is a lot of work. It's a lot of work and folks aren't getting paid for most of what they're doing on this, huh? Well, at least not publicly, uh, at least not for their board time. I mean, yeah, yeah, we don't know. There's just been the conflicts conversation. uh, I don't think is over yet. And, uh, you know, it's, it, there just seems to be, we also had, you know, our, uh, the chair of the board, um, you know, resigned under interesting circumstances, just hours before the final meeting of. Oh, no kidding. Of, I didn't, I did not know that. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. More uh, articles in the press about conflicts of interest. There was an outstanding, uh, request to the governor's office to, to look into it. And it was just hours before the final training subcommittee, the, the board chair, uh, Tom Eckhart, uh, sent out. Oh, wait, resig- nope. I'm sorry. I did know about that. I'm sorry. I did know. Yes. 
I remember seeing that. And for folks at home, Tom is one of the original proponents of the measure. Uh, he, he and his wife, who has since passed on, uh, mm-hmm. were the original proponents of it. And it's really hard to know, um, you know, whether, you know, because he resigned. So so there was actually at the March, the full March meeting, there was a, a motion, a, a vote at the end of the February meeting that all board members were going to have to completely disclose all their conflicts at the March meeting. Um, and so they did a go around and, you know, because Tom had resigned by then, uh, we, we never heard what those conflicts may have been. Um, and so because of that, we may never know, uh, you know, and, you know, I don't think anybody, you know, so there's plenty of business interests that could be, I mean, would likely be totally permissible for a person to have. I mean, as a volunteer board, they want industry uh, input to to make sure that they get a better understanding of the things that they're regulating. I mean, that's just a normal part of the the process. Uh, But there's a requirement that conflicts be disclosed before a vote. um, And and there just hasn't been a culture or a practice of ever disclosing conflicts before any vote on anything. Really? I don't think it's ever happened that a, a conflict of interest has ever been disclosed before a vote, even once, like ever. So that's arguably the entire set of recommendations that this board has made have been completely like have been predicated upon unethical or potentially, uh, you know, illegal uh, uh, you know, you know, uh, pretext or, or circumstances. Sure, sure. Well, well, at, at a minimum, if if there are exterior forces that are directing or shaping votes in what would otherwise be un, unnatural ways, sure, absolutely, yes, it's a problem. Uh, the only thing I question though is whether there's anything to be done about it. You know, oftentimes uh, conflicts go unaddressed. Uh, whatever is done is done. Yeah. So. Yeah. Hopefully that works itself out. Well, and it's just part of this, this, the 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 appearance uh, of this board for it to to then have this kind of stain, I guess, for lack of a better word, even if it's even if it's only public perception, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that it, it is, but I'm not sure that it's not either. Uh, but, you know, it, even if it is just public perception that there is this, uh, this kind of corrupt uh, undercurrent of, of the boards and the health authorities rulemaking process, um, you know, you would think that just to avoid uh, the potential stain on this uh, historic process that there would be a greater attempt to to respond to uh, these appearances, um, even if they are just appearances. And so within that context, for them to come out and then uh, not only ignore, like deny a nonprofit community use framework that would expand access and, and, and remove money out of the exchanges that are required to, to take and to offer psilocybin, uh, it's it's just it, it, you know it, it's so uh, 
upsetting. Uh, sure. But people who, remember yeah. also, we're living at a time where a sitting U.S. Supreme Court justice is ruling on cases involving his own wife. So conflict of interest <laughs> is kind of a optional thing these days, unfortunately. It doesn't have to be. In oh, Oregon, I agree it doesn't have to be, but it seems to be. And this is Oregon, you know, like let the Supreme, I mean, the Supreme Court has its issues, but like, this is, this is the world's first regulated psychedelic services program. And this is the first set of rules that are ever going to govern that program. Yeah. Well, let's say something optimistic though. You, you're, you're not harboring any concern, like the program's going to stall or not keep moving forward. Right. This is just a protocol you were hoping for that just didn't make it through this phase. Nothing more. Right. And it's not done yet. I mean, I think, the fact that it was such a, a bad faith uh, denial, you know, a, a, a failure to even consider meaningfully, I think it almost opens the door for there to be uh, a corrective process to that. Um, and you know, we're we're examining what what that might look like, but um, you know, essentially, you know, we this. This isn't over, uh, I guess, is what we're saying. And the other uh, good news, I guess, if we want to look to it, is uh, my understanding there was something in the Washington uh, law that would um, kind of create more uh, emphasis in the measure, in their measure itself, uh, about religious use within a regulated program. Same thing with the Colorado law, like they have even more um, aspects of um, kind of religious community ceremonial use written into theirs so you know if we had started this process um back in early march of last year when the board met and we had had this inserted into the conversation over the course of last year uh, people could have wrapped their heads around it a little bit sooner and maybe made peace with it um, or else we would have had more time to build the pressure to really apply and and, and show them that this uh that, that they're on the wrong side of history on on that particular issue um, so the good news is that in future states that are looking at this, I think um, advocates are, you know, I'm, I'm already being, re you know, people are reaching out and um, the conversation is beginning early about how do we not let, how do we learn from this, this process in Oregon where it's gone like terribly wrong? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oregon's going to be the nation's classroom on this. It, it already is. So, Yeah. yeah. All right, cool. So what comes next? Well, uh, yeah, so we've got products, testing, training rules, training programs are um, are being uh, issued, um, you know, starting to announce their uh, their enrollment and, and invite people to apply. Um, Psychedelics Today just announced that they're uh, opening an Oregon Vital uh, program, which I'm going to be involved with and I'm really excited about helping them to, um, to, to do that. Um, and, uh, you, you know, say these are training programs, training of whom and for what? That is a great question. Yeah. Uh, facilitator, it's like psilocybin facilitator training for measure 109. So, okay. but they still haven't settled on the rules for that yet either. They have settled on training rules. They have training rules now. Okay. So we, what's, what's required? It's a 120 hour core curriculum, uh, which is kind of what I consider like the classroom uh, curriculum uh, piece, and then a 40 hour practicum on top of the 120 hours. Uh, the 120 can be 
purely online uh, with a combination of synchronous and asynchronous learning. Uh, the 40 hour practicum has to be in person. Um, and so it's a 160 hour minimum uh, program that once you, uh, once a student completes the program and uh, they'll be eligible for uh, taking the test for psilocybin licensure. Uh, and there may be a few other requirements like criminal background checks and things like that, uh, that they'll have to go through to be eligible. But, but generally speaking, if you have a high school diploma, you take a training class, you pass it with a, you know, pass a final exam in that curriculum. Uh, and then you take the state licensing exam. Uh, then you're basically ready to become a licensed facilitator. Hmm. Okay. And this 120 hours, it, uh, do the rules script out what the curriculum content of that 120 hours must be? It sure does in quite a bit of detail. Um, funny you should ask. So um, it includes things like the historical, traditional, and contemporary practices, like, like the war on drugs, uh, you know, cultural equity with psilocybin, racial justice, um, safety, ethics, and responsibilities related to facilitation, a little bit of pharmacology. Okay. Group sessions, uh, you know, group administration, regular administration, integration and preparation. So in each subject area has a bunch of subparts and a minimum number of hours and all that kind of thing. So, um, you know, there's kind of, it's pretty uh, circumscribed um, at, 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 the, at the floor, at the, at the minimum level. And then uh, training providers can choose to go, you know, above those uh, minimums uh, if they want to go into greater depth, but that's like the minimum uh, kind of barrier to entry. And what about continuing education obligation, any ongoing credit necessary? There hasn't been a lot of talk about that um, yet. Uh, it doesn't appear to be required uh, by this uh, current set of rules. Um, it could be that we see something like that in the final set um, of, of rules that comes later, but the set of rules that we have now are kind of limited to products, testing, and facilitator training programs. Um, and the, the logic there was that those are the things that need to go first so that when sure. January comes around, there'll be uh, some, you know, some of the programs. there to work. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah, it's great to build the boat. If you have no sailors, though, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> so, <clears throat> yeah, for sure. Um, I, I'm willing to bet you're probably going to find yourselves embracing a continuing education component on this. And I, the logic there, as I'm thinking about this, is knowledge is going to improve over time, and you're going to want to get the most up-to-date stuff out to everybody. And if you're not requiring them to come back, you have no guarantee they'll ever get it. So. I think the body of work for, uh, you know, best practices in this discipline will go from like zero to 90 in 60 seconds. You oh, know? God, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, the initial Unless. scripting of all of that, that's going to be horrible. But yeah, once the initial scripting is done, for sure, you'll have a nice library. Yeah. And so there's going to be a ton of work that's needed to make sure that the body of ethics that develops and, and you know, best practices um, you know, reflects the great weight of reason and, and that, you know, the more enlightened kind of views prevail on um, 
how to protect, you know, some really delicate safety issues where people are highly suggestible, um, you know, and that kind of thing. Like there's going to be, uh, the, the talk is finally, uh, at this last meeting, I think it's the first time I heard any mention of the possibility of a directive approach under measure 109. Uh, 109 doesn't require non-directive facilitation actually. Um, so, you know, there's talk about that kind of thing, uh, and how that could, you know, reshape the program and ethics around using directive, uh, measures within facilitation, I think will, be one of the things that I find to be uh, concerning that we need to rapidly uh, address to make sure that, you know, people aren't being unduly influenced under these kind of delicate, you know, vulnerable states of mind. And, um, you know, that's something that the board uh, or, or OHA uh, could spend a lot more time on is um, exploring rules around directive facilitation um and that sort of thing but yeah let me ask you because we've mentioned we've had this conversation once before but it reminds me Uh, over the past couple of years i've seen an uptick in two kinds of stories that are kind of online with what you and i are talking about right now one is this sort of uptick in in uh claims of sexual assault at out of the country psychedelic retreats and the other thing, which is directly on point, is I saw an article just a couple of weeks ago talking about how there needed to be better training and monitoring of um, the, the facilitators or, or leaders of these sessions uh, to make sure that they are not improperly influencing things. And the particular, particular story I was looking at was talking about sexual predators being in the role of a leader mm-hmm. and, and, you know, taking advantage while people were susceptible. Uh, any conversation along those lines happening in, in, in circles up in Oregon o- over this? So there has been uh, talk and um, about whether there should be a kind of a minimum prescriptive period uh, like a person may not enter into a sexual relationship or a romantic relationship with uh, between a facilitator and client unless I think the recommendation was two years have passed since the termination of the facilitator client relationship. Okay. Um, and so there has been talk about that. Um, you know, I think that is going to be one of the, the major you know, everyone's worried about what the the horror stories, you know, what the the bad press that the program is going to get. And uh, my personal uh, sense of it is it's probably going to be not so much in a like a physical harm uh, from like psilocybin itself. But I think the facilitator abuse is probably going to be uh, one of the areas that uh, we we see. Uh, some bad press around. And, you know, the hope is that training programs will do a really good job of emphasizing just how, I mean, you'll, your license will go away forever. If you cross these lines, you could go to jail if you cross these lines. Um, but, you know, and I think there'll be a really interesting uh, set of uh, legal uh, opinions about consent while in a psychedelic state that that doesn't exist yet, um, you know whether whether that can be consensual. Um, 
if not agreed to before the experience, but, um, you know, these are just kind of new, new territory. Yeah. Yeah. This is going to be the next, uh, dating battleground after college campuses, right? Mm. Horrible, horrible. Mm. I, 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 I hope most places avoid even ever having to have this conversation, but unfortunately you have to, you have to, I, I think, I think we have to have this conversation all the time because I think it's going to be so important and it's going to bear repeating. And I think that uh, for a lot of people, there's going to be temptation and, you know, and, and to set clear boundaries is just going to be one of the few, you know, non-negotiable rules that must always oh. be adhered to. Oh, now. yeah, and, and it has to be non-negotiable. If you're a facilitator, yeah, you have to be professional above board the entire time. There's no space in there for anything less than that. Because you gotta, you got to figure, at least some percentage of your clientele coming to these facilities are coming because of traumas they have, and some percentage of those are going to be physical traumas. Yeah. Or psychosexual traumas. Trauma. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you don't know who you're dealing with until you're dealing with them. And even then you may not know. Yeah. And they can be triggered by things that from the facilitator's perspective, maybe even totally innocuous, well-meaning gestures or whatever. hundred percent. hundred percent. Or, um, or, or you send them home with a bad idea mm. and then they act on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yikes. Again, that part of non-directive or the delicate nature of ever uh, delving into directive facilitation. Um, you know, I'm I'm concerned about it, but yeah. um, I've not heard much board discussion given to that yet. So we'll we'll see. They're about out of time. Um, but anyway, um, yeah. So so. Yeah, the proposal uh, sort of failed at OPAB. Um, there's hope that, you know, there will be some someone along this rulemaking uh, chain that will actually give it a full and fair review and will be willing to dialogue with uh, its supporters um, in, a, in a transparent and meaningful, open way so that, you know, I, you know, I, I, the way I see it, entheogenic practitioners really can help the state know how best to safely run ceremony. I mean, this is new stuff, and there are people who have experience with this. Uh, and for the state to try to ignore those voices and make a program that avoids, uh, you know, engaging with those uh, stakeholders, uh, they're really making a big mistake. Uh, in my view and the views of many people. Um, and it's not only bad just because these are the people who, who know, uh, who have experience, uh, whose experience surpasses the state's experience. Um, and then there's just this cultural piece of it that if most people who, you know, or, or many people, you know, they, the state did a, a community interest survey and 49% of all people who responded to the survey said that they were taking the one of their reasons for taking psilocybin under measure 109 was for spiritual purposes so you know why the state would then exclude 
that voice from its rulemaking is it just it defies reason you know i i just i've sat with it and i just can't come up with a with a single good reason why they wouldn't consult with us so i'm yeah. still a little sore and raw about this so sorry if this is a little no uh, no no I, trust me I, I i appreciate the frustration uh i'm i'm not dealing with this myself but i've had to deal with things similar here with our cannabis program so uh, i get it i completely get it uh and i i think it's a combination in part of uh fear of the unknown and laziness mm. I, that's what i think it is but your your program does allow you, though, to petition for rules changes at any time, right? So even if you don't necessarily win the argument today, you could come back a year from now or another year from now and see if you can't get rules added or, or the program modified to include something broader, can't you? In theory, yes. But the problem with that is there is this kind of institutional reticence to review things in deep and meaningful ways once they're set. And it's a lot harder to fix something than it is to build it right in the first place. The other challenge is that we have this emerging, you know, I call it the psychedelics industrial complex where, you know, business interests lobby. I mean, that's just what businesses do in a capitalist system like ours where Supreme Court says money is speech and it's protected, you're going to get, you know, uh, businesses that try to maintain a highly monetized program that keeps out community use out. I mean, it's just like the the Washington example where they can't even grow their own cannabis. You know, they have yeah. to go to a dispensary. Um, we're seeing even regressive uh, amendments to Oregon's cannabis program where the medical program is having its uh, is, is being challenged to reduce uh, kind of the home grow non uh, non dispensary uh, growing uh, options uh, in favor of funneling more of the you know medical marijuana through through the dispensaries. So it's um, that's that's just kind of the way this happens. So it this this work only gets harder as uh as time goes on uh and and this industry becomes more um established and and, and better capitalized um and it, it's harder in other states too i mean i've been talking with people in some other states and oregon's a pretty small state um you know and so i think there have been business interests that have particularly stepped out and said you know oregon's too small to be worth our while but when California comes on, kind of the moneyed interests that jump in there, it just it's sure. harder and harder to fight. And as a person who's been doing this work completely unpaid, you know, I've not made a single dollar for anything uh, I've I've done. Like I've not charged anybody. Nobody's uh, paid me uh, for anything. I actually had uh, some financial situations uh, that uh, supporters, uh, you know, recently pulled together a little bit of money to help me with a, a kind of a personal uh, thing that came because I've been donating so much time uh, to this work yeah. that it's, it's just consumed uh, a lot. So, um, you know, but, but in terms of how hard it is for grassroots unpaid, you know, uh, advocates to, to make impact um, it gets harder the longer this goes on. So you are right. There is like some kind of like optimism about, you know, maybe we can learn and, and, you know, next round might be a little easier, but 
there's also things that are going to make it harder next round too, that, um, you know, it, it, we can just nip this in the bud right now and put entheogenic use at, give it a seat at the table. We can give community-based nonprofits a seat at the table to establish that as a valid part of the psychedelic ecosystem. All right. Well, um, let's, uh, wrap on, on two thoughts. Number one, what's the next milestone, uh, date wise. And then number two, what can people do today to help advance what you're talking about? Yeah. So the next milestone is, uh, the June board meeting will be the date that all OPAB Oregon civil cyber advisory board uh, recommendations are due and they're submitted. So that'll be the basically the end of the board's influence in formal rulemaking, uh, at least on the first set of rules. So that's that's set by statute, and that's just coming up in a month now. So that's right around the corner. Uh, so stay tuned for the final version of those, uh, the final set of recommendations there. And then uh, for how to support the, the work, uh, I believe the Indigenous Practitioners Council of Oregon, I'm a member uh, of that, um, and we'll be likely uh, beginning a new petition to kind of address some of these grievances uh, in hopes that, um, you know, we will find an audience, a uh, receptive audience. You know, all this advocacy is great, but if if the people kind of at the top of this chain aren't willing to, to listen, uh, you know, then we have to escalate uh, tactics. And we've been uh, trying to trying to have candid dialogue uh, with with them, uh, but have been refused. So, you know, if 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 the only way to have meaningful dialogue is to continue escalating, uh, then then really they leave us no other choice. Uh, and so, um, there will be another petition uh, that begins to be circulating probably uh, early to mid June. So, uh, I'll, I'm sure I'll post that in the in the show notes here. So, <laughs> another petition to to supplant or supplement 109. Uh, petition to the probably Oregon Health Authority to um, engage in sincere, open, transparent dialogue about these issues. Oh, so you you mean a petition just directly to the agency? I thought you meant a full blown petition, like li- like literally run an additional measure petition. No, uh-uh. <laughs> I mean there may <laughs> be one of those uh, at some point too, but it's it's that's you know. That, that's a ways down the road. Yeah, I was going to say, because that, that's ambitious. You're, you're not even done with the first one. So. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. I, I misunderstood. Sorry about that. All right. Cool. Uh, and if folks want to get in touch with you, John, how, how would they do that? Assuming you want folks to get in touch with you. Maybe you don't. <laughs> I shouldn't assume that. <laughs> Maybe oh, you've had I, enough I, of people. Oh, I, it's been, yeah, it's been great. Um, as I've been doing this work more publicly, it's just been truly um, an honor and, uh, and and privilege and to be, I uh, have so many people, you know, strangers uh, reach out and, and show uh, strong and, and passionate support for this work. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I've been, uh, as this has escalated and gotten bigger and, and more kind of prominent, um, you know, it, it's become harder and harder to, to, to respond to people that are reaching out. So um, really, Sorry about uh, that sort of thing, but um, you know, I'd still love to hear from people and and love uh, you know all. Like we're building a community, and uh, you know, it's really kind of a, an amazing 
uh, thing to be a part of. Uh, but you know, LinkedIn's probably the best place. Um, I, I'm very active on there, and that's probably the best place for to follow. And then you can reach me through there. Um, and I'll my my email is um, John J O N uh, at Sagebrush hyphen law law.com excellent should i be really mean and try to trick you into giving out your personal cell number ah. <laughs> true true story the the rule in in my uh professional life i don't give my cell number out like nobody gets it because man i'll tell you the first time a, a client gets it they will call you at four in the morning on a sunday just to chat guaranteed so I felt really honored. Uh, it, I mean, we'd known each other for probably a year before I felt uh, was privy to the Gary Smith uh, private cell phone number. And but I felt you made weird. it on the short list, didn't you, buddy? <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> so you should yeah. feel honored and privileged. It is an honor and a privilege. Uh, but but seriously, though, I would never, ever, ever have you give your cell phone out. Oh, that's crazy talk. That's crazy. Never do that. <laughs> All right. So when am I having you back next? What's what's the next big moment we should have you back here to tell us more? Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, it depends in part on on what OHA does in light of this kind of new uh, kind of tone deaf uh, parents that they are uh, developing, um, and you know, they, they may uh, reverse course quickly or they may uh, stick to their guns and uh, we, we don't know uh, what they'll do, but um, it's, you know, probably, I think they'll probably issue a, a new round of draft rules uh, probably August, July or August. And so maybe we can talk about uh, the rest of the set as, as a draft, uh, maybe, maybe then. All right. Let's do that. But hopefully I will talk to you before then. Yeah, hope so, Gary. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming out. I will uh, be in touch shortly. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Gary. Take care. Have a question about psychedelics and the law? You're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community. Thank you.